All right, everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Gestalt Education Show. Uh, we're really excited to be sitting down with our next clinical savant, uh, Dr. Eric Mitz. And so Dr. Eric Mitz is in town this weekend in Troy. Uh, we're drinking some Slivovitz in uh, honor of our friends from the Czech Republic and watching the Masters. And uh, we just got done with day two of dry needling one. And so uh, it, Eric has been influential to me since basically my, my uh, uh, chiropractic career since I was in school, taking his acupuncture and dry needling classes. And has kind of uh, led the way for me as far as giving me the, the direction on where to take dry needling. And so, uh, Eric, uh, where do you practice? And uh, kind of tell us your practice real quick. I practice in Evansville, Indiana, southwest corner of the state, and uh, have uh, a, a general family practice. We treat mostly chronic pain patients and uh, rehab-focused practice. I love it. And uh, another cool thing about Eric is that him and his family are deep into the horse game. Yep. And so, love the horses. <laughs> so we were we were talking on lunch. That today. means he's making good money, by the way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and any money I make is going out the back. No, that's exactly going right. to horses. So, uh, absolutely. So, um, well, let's just start off with dry needling in general. So, what uh, what first piqued your interest in dry needling, and and who were kind of your first influential people when it came to, to dry needling? So my, I studied acupuncture while at, while at Logan, and um, my mentor at Logan primarily was, uh, I had several mentors, but my primary mentor was Norman Kettner. Dr. Kettner kind of pushed me toward dry needling, uh, not aggressively certainly, but just introduced me to the idea of it through the work of Chan Gunn and who uh, intellectually at least is a mentor of mine um, I don't know him personally um, so but intellectually Dr. Chan Gunn it w would be another mentor of mine for dry needling I like it awesome uh, Eric what are the differences for our, our people who are listening in on uh, dry needling and acupuncture a lot of people have that that question I know the three of us know that but for, the, for our listeners what is the what is the difference between those uh, two entities? Primarily, it's about intent. I mean, you're using the same type of needle with both practices, but with acupuncture, you're focused on needling, generally speaking, needling predetermined points that are universal through, through for all humans and even across the animal. Uh, like in veterinary practice, the acupuncture points more or less are analogous. And acupuncture has as its motivation principally the manipulation of Chi, which they view as a traditionally at least view as sort of a life energy in the body, and, and that if it's not in balance, the yin and yang balance, let's say, of of, uh, of it, then you through the manipulation of the of the chi, you can bring the body back into balance and and so forth. Whereas dry needling has very little to do with any of that, or nothing to do with any of that. It's purely. Uh, based on restoring normal function, nor normal length tension relationship in the muscle, elimination of active trigger points, and restoration of normal neurological function and biochemical function in the body. Yeah, and I, I think uh, another cool thing about dry needling is that it's honestly it's been going on for a long while. I remember in your acupuncture courses you talked about ashi acupuncture, yes. which which translates to ah there, yes there, yes there, yes there, pain points, yes. And, and that's where the argument from the acupuncturists arrives, uh, it, which, where they would argue aggressively that 
dry needling is really just an, a, a, a cousin or a form of acupuncture that it's not a separate discipline that it's a sub-discipline of it within acupuncture and that's why I as, a, as an acupuncturist I understand their position and I'm sympathetic to it to a degree however I think uh, they've they missed the boat when they haven't abandoned the aspects of acupuncture that are not scientific not you know based in modern understanding of physiology and so forth so um, yeah, I feel like uh, dry needling, as we as it's currently practiced, certainly has the only resemblance it has to ashi acupuncture, which you know ashi acupuncture would apply the needles to specific points that are in pain, not necessarily just acupuncture points. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really the only commonality is that they may both end up stimulating a, a trigger point at some point. But the, the reason why they're doing it is completely different. And what is the criteria for you, and we're uh, obviously you're teaching this this weekend, for why you would deliver a needle into a tissue? What, what makes you do that? That's a very complicated question, <laughs> believe, believe it or not. But generally speaking, if a patient has myofascial dysfunction, that's manifesting neurologically through pain or through through some locomotor dysfunction, and um, believe it or not, even though I'm a, obviously I teach dry needling and I'm a strong advocate for it, it's not always first line for me. Uh, manual therapy approaches generally are more first line for me in our practice. So if they don't, if patients don't respond to traditional manual therapy approaches, then the needling becomes something we fall back on in those situations. So would you, just to expand on that, are you finding this through your palpation? So you're obviously palpating trigger points and tender points. I kind of know the answer to this, but I, I think people would want to know because when we deal with this in joint palpation too, where there's a lot of people in the world trying to tell us that we're not reliable in our palpation. So I'd like you to maybe talk about the importance of us still being able to palpate trigger points, muscle tissue to kind of guide the treatment and know that a patient might be needing, you know, dry needling as a modality because of that. So really what drives me toward considering dry needling or even more so dry needling is, is the, is the presence of what would be considered an active trigger point. An active trigger point is one that among other things creates pain without provocation. So the patient has a particular pain pattern that they arrive at, you know, that, that, that when they're sitting at home or sitting at work without doing anything, they feel this pain, you know, kind of like the classic upper trap trapezius pain pattern that manifests as sort of the ram's horn distribution of pain that goes up the neck and over the ear and behind the eye. That's a classic pain distribution pattern for the upper trapezius. If a patient comes in and, and you look at their pain diagram and you question the patient and they're, they're saying, yeah, I have this sort of dull, achy, constant pain, you know, I, I start to think, well, perhaps a trigger point, an active trigger point is the culprit. And in those cases, if I go in, you know, using the knowledge of the different pain patterns uh, propagated initially by Travell and Simons and subsequently added to by others, if you find that the muscle, a muscle trigger point when provoked exaggerates those symptoms you can you can be pretty confident that it is the trigger point that's causing those symptoms and so um, oftentimes you know the for various reasons sometimes economic sometimes clinical we resort to manual therapy approaches and treating those trigger points first um, however dry needling is certainly 
a lot quicker. The, the data is not clear, however, that dry needling or manual therapy approaches are superior to one another. They both basically, the research thus far has demonstrated they're roughly equivalent clinically. So then it falls back on patient preference, you know, uh, economic factors that just decide which one we're going to go with first. Perfect. So throughout the weekend, we've uh, you've used different terms, trigger points and tender points. So can you kind of expand what the difference between those uh, two things are? I would say that a tender point can be any tissue that you compress and, or palpate and causes tenderness or discomfort for the patient. It might be not necessarily muscle. It could be something else. You, could, you certainly can have tender points in muscle. Trigger points, though, particularly have uh, a characteristic pain referral pattern when, when you compress them or palpate them. They have a twitch response, especially if they're active. Uh, that you don't see with just normal tender points in muscle. There's, you know, this is certainly not something we assess clinically in the average clinic and certainly not in ours, but they have a biochemistry that's associated, trigger points do, biochemical changes that are associated in the body with the trigger point that you don't see uh, with tender points, you know. So tender points are not, are not necessarily the primary clinical target. Tender points can often just be a manifestation of locomotor dysfunction somewhere else in the body. Mm-hmm. Whereas trigger points very often are the primary clinical target for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I discover if it's an active trigger point, it doesn't matter if in any of the other approaches we take, if we don't eliminate that active trigger point, we're not going to get that patient well. Mm-hmm. Now on a post dry needling audit, um, you anchor the needle, you wind up the needle, and then when the needle's ready to be released, then it sounds like that's kind of your criteria to know that we've kind of met our goals for the treatment. I'm wondering if that's enough, or then do you go back and check and palpate the trigger point for a twitch response, or you just assume that everything's good with the response that, that you got? Or No, you- always test, treat, test, right? But with the palpation again. Absolutely, okay. absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And should our listener- Well, let me, let me stop. Uh, 100% of the time, no. But in a, the ideal, in a Yes, the ideal scenario is yes, that's exactly what we do. And then should our listeners expect to have complete resolution of the trigger point? Like, so when they're done, in a perfect scenario, what should you feel now? Would you say that the trigger point is completely abolished? Obviously, the, the twitch response should be gone. I'm assuming that's one of the goals. But would you expect, like in palpation, to, to basically feel zero trigger point at that point? Yes, or, or the trigger point should be relatively inconsequential to the right. patient. Okay. It certainly should drop out of the, of the realm of you know, clinically relevant mm-hmm. uh, to, and drop under that into maybe, or maybe drop out of the realm of active trigger point to the realm of tender point, which, mm-hmm. you know, doesn't have the pain referral pattern associated with it. Doesn't, it it's not neurologically, you know, significant. But most of the time, honestly, uh, once we treat the trigger points, they are gone afterwards. Right. Mm-hmm. That's, that's critical. But do I consider it a failure if I go back and there's still maybe a, a, a tender nodule there and the patient but if it doesn't refer pain, do I consider that a failure? No, because my ultimately my target is you know resolution of the dysfunction, not you know some other goal that maybe doesn't have any any basis and function for the patient. So, um, but no, that would make me want to go back in if I can. I want it to be perfect, obviously. But uh, in the va- but the vast majority of the time, to answer your question simply, yes, you, we would expect a complete resolution of their of, of their trigger point. 
And you've kind of carved yourself out as basically being one of the experts in the world in the treatment of trigger points. So in saying that, um, what do you think as far as like Travell and Simmons work now that you've had, you know, 20 plus years of experience doing this, do you feel like their maps are a hundred percent accurate? Do you feel like there's more to the story or do you still, I, I noticed that you still as a recommended text recommend their third edition new book. Um, but is that, are you in 100% agreement of, you know, all their maps and everything that they describe? I think that their maps, um, are mostly vastly accurate. Uh, there have been some maps that have been updated as time goes on. You know, the literature, occasionally people will notice uh, a recurring theme that maybe this particular map's not exactly right. And there have been some modifications to some maps and some other clinical researchers have, you know, published some updates. And in my presentation, certainly the one I deliver here with Gestalt, you know, we discuss those differences when they occur. Mm-hmm. But I think as a starting point, one could learn you know, those maps and and deliver 99.9% accurate care for most patients. There are those weird patients that, you know, where the new maps, you know, you're, you're expanding that information and maybe there's some, it just hasn't been verified enough by enough people to say this is for sure, the, 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 but Terrell and Simon's for sure is the de facto standard. Sure. It's the gold standard, if you will. Mm-hmm. And um, but there are, yes, but in the literature, if you follow it, there are people that go in and reevaluate some of the maps from time to time. And mm-hmm. our presentation is always updated with that information for sure. Nice. Are the, uh, for our listeners, there's a website called triggerpoints.net where all the Travell and Simmons pictures are there. The books are kind of expensive. Yeah, they are. And they have like some information in it that's probably not pertinent at this mm-hmm. point as far as the spray and stretch. But, uh, <laughs> but anyways, the pictures are all in there and, and they're actually really good. And uh, so what do you think, Eric? There's, a, there's like smart, evidence-based people in the world right now that are questioning whether trigger points actually matter. And of course, we're... <laughs> we're obviously at odds to this statement, but but don't you find that kind of peculiar? I don't know how in the world somebody could make that statement with a straight face. I, I really don't. I mean, 25 years ago, maybe. Right. But now with the data that's out there that just convincingly demonstrates repeatedly that this is a real clinical phenomena that has clinical relevance that you can identify reliably, that you can eliminate reliably and restore normal function and eliminate symptoms for the patient reliably. I I don't even, those people are flat earth people as far as I'm concerned. I don't really, you should not practice. (laughs) (laughs) I don't really pay much attention to people that have that sort of opinion because I just don't, I think it's so far out of the mainstream of modern musculoskeletal medicine. I just don't even uh, it's not even relevant. To yeah, it's refreshing to hear. So how do you, uh, what are some keys for people to learn how to palpate through layers of muscle? So we talked about one of the big advantages of uh, trigger point therapy and dry needling is being able to actually have the needle be able to go through different layers. Whereas if we're doing any kind of superficial skin modality, it's very questionable whether or not, you know, how, how much depth we're getting. So when we're talking about, you know, palpating a trigger point, let's just say in tibialis posterior, which is underneath other muscles, what are, what are the tips? Like what, how do people get good at it being able to do that? <clears throat> um, wow. I, I, this is going to be an unpopular opinion, but practice, you know, 10,000 hours. Um, and unfortunately there are just some people that just don't have the, the, te- the tactile skill, the dexterity, whatever it is, you know, the, uh, 
proprioceptive density, whatever it is. They just don't have that ability to, but those people are rare. The vast majority of people, especially people who navigated a chiropractic or physical therapy or physical medicine training paradigm, have developed the tactile skills necessary to fill these things. Clinically relevant trigger points are, uh, at least the ones that are, you know, that are palpable, are generally palpable by the vast majority of people who can palpate them. So there's nobody that's going to be able to palpate a multifidus trigger point, right? Nobody can. But, you know, the sort of trigger points you're referring to, like, you know, vastus intermedius versus underneath rec fem, yes, you can, you will be able to trigger, you can, you can palpate those trigger points reliably and, you know, there have been studies looking at inter-examiner and intra-examiner reliability on these things. It exists. It is reliable um, as long as they're a skilled practitioner. But that comes at a cost. Sure. Mm-hmm. And then, Eric, so most of our listeners, they're, you know, in a, they're using a multi-modality approach. So sure. they're mixing manipulation, rehab, soft tissue, as they should. Yep. So have you noticed any combination that seems to work well? Just as an example, are you afraid to manipulate dry needle, do soft tissue all in the treatment? Do you try to like pay attention like in a specific treatment, what order you do the dry needling compared to manipulation? Or do you find that it's just case dependent? It really doesn't matter. You haven't noticed any like patterns that you find yourself uh, tending towards? I would say that uh, for patients that are First of all, no, we are uh, at the risk of sounding sort of, you know, flippant. We are a kitchen sink practice. I mean, we're going to throw whatever, any and all modalities at a patient that are necessary to help them achieve their goals, whatever those goals are. Return to play, return to work, get out of pain, all the above. Um, So, no, we absolutely, any and all. So it's not unusual for patients in our practice to you know, have half an hour or 45 minutes of, of rehab exercise correctives, you know, going, go into some manual therapy for a half an hour, 25 minutes, whatever, go receive some manipulation, do some dry needling, maybe laser. I mean, there's all, you know, that's not unusual. It's not the norm, but it's not unusual. Mm-hmm. I find for myself that I like, I like to be at the end of the visit as, uh, as their physician, as a provider, I like to be at the end of the visit so I can talk to them about the care they received during the visit from other providers in our clinic. And also because I find the manipulation, which I deliver, um, I find it to be a little easier to deliver after they've exercised, after they've received manual therapy. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the visit, um, I and also manual therapy tends to sort of clean the muscles up of the trivial trigger points that only dry needling can resolve. And so I'm left then with, the, let's say, the big uglies that the dry needling will, will very easily resolve. That manual therapy just can't for whatever reason. And the manipulation is usually even is performed a little easier once the muscles are warmed up and a little loose. So, yeah, I like to be at the end of the visit, preferably. But we, And that's the way it is the majority of the time. But, you know, I'm not dogmatic in my approach to, to, to practice. Like, I'm not like you guys, you know, very pragmatic and not dogmatic. So Right. What percent of your patients do you use electricity on the needles with, would you say? Um, 90 plus percent. Um, I, I, and I, and, you know, honestly, if pushed on that top issue, I can't say that I can point to you know, several high-quality randomized controlled trials. I would say that you should do the electricity or not. But keep in mind, evidence-based medicine is predicated on not just 
the literature, but also patient preferences and the provider's experience. And over 25 years of practice, I've, I've discovered that electrically stimulating the needles provides better outcomes in my experience. I think most practitioners who've practiced enough, who have their 10,000 hours, who've practiced with thousands of patients, will, will agree with that. I don't know, what do you, what do you yeah, think? Same. Yeah, same. Which leads me to the next question would be, you know, one of the other leading experts in this field is uh, a guy named Ma, who both the, both mm -hmm. of us have taken courses from. Mm -hmm. Ma is firmly of the belief that the length of time that the needle is in the patient doesn't matter. Correct. Um, we find ourselves leaving needles in. Correct. We always joke that they make good babysitters. They yeah. make a good exit out of the room. Like so. But besides that, do you believe that? Um, do you believe that maybe Ma might be off a little bit on that? Do you think there might be some other? I don't know, neurophysiologic effects that could be there by leaving the needles in? Or do you think that it's more of just like our patients, they live on their phones, they're always stressed out and that, you know, everybody can stand and do nothing for 10 minutes and it's helpful? Or do you feel like there's actually, you know, a, a, maybe a neurologic benefit to leaving the needles in that maybe it's not being described? Well, I think that there may be some neurologic benefits, but I think the greatest benefit, what I've observed at least for the patients is Part of the process that I teach, that uh, and I'm not alone in this, is anchoring the needle in the fascia, ro you know, twisting, rotating the needle, wrapping the fascia. Helene Langevin, you know, first described that um, the fascia winding around the needle. When you leave the needle in with the fascia around it, over time, the the fascia will reorganize itself into a more um, appropriate form, so that you, you the the patient can move better and function better. I don't think by just sticking the needle in, you certainly get some of the neurological benefits and biochemical benefits, but you can't possibly get the same fascia benefits without winding the needle and letting the, giving the fascia time to reorganize itself around that needle. And so while you know, at the risk of you know, creating controversy, it's certainly not my intention, my experience leads me to believe that that is a critical component of needle therapy, which is the, the, the fascial reorganization. And anybody that's done this work for any length of time and has approached it seriously and, and actually taken the time and effort to learn how to properly wind the fascia around the needle and done it, and then observed the difference in the tension in the needle, I believe you, you guys both practice that way, um, you see the result, the patients, it does give a different result in my opinion. Can you just do needling of patients and get a result? Absolutely, it's called acupuncture. They do it all, right. <laughs> and they do it a lot. And Dr. Ma is an acupuncturist. Let's be fair; he's not. He is an acupuncturist. Sure. He's a PhD. He's a very, very bright, capable man. And, and I have a lot of. I studied his his theories, and I still uh, would encourage people to study his his ideas. I but for me and my the way I approach, it's not exactly how I think. For the majority of my patients, it's the right way to go. Would you have any reservations, Eric, dry needling, or we got the masters on right now. Let's just say that we were working with a professional golfer, let's just say. Yep. And they were, you know, they had a tee time today at 2.20 and you were treating them this morning. Would you have any reservations doing dry needling session with them this morning, knowing that they're going to play golf later today? Nope, and I've done exactly that. Yeah, So me too. Yeah, I, I have no reservations at all, in fact, uh, one golfer in particular that I do work with, uh, when you know, not regularly, but I see him at least you know once a year at a tournament or so. Um, 
he, that's what he wants. He likes, he feels like he's a little looser and he performs a little better, you know, immediately after being needle. So we'll needle him and he'll go immediately from the office or from wherever, hotel, whatever, to the range and warm up. So would, um, that was the first question. The second part of that would be your patients. Is there any new patient today? We do dry needling with them. Do you say you may be sore? You're not going to be sore. You should expect to feel better. Like what's your, what's your verbiage to the patient? I tell them that uh, you, you may have some soreness. You should go about your normal activity. You know, and by normal, I don't mean if you normally jog for half an hour, don't jog for an hour. You know, <laughs> jog for half an hour is fine. Um, that they should stay hydrated. You know, that there may be some discomfort, but it's not. It shouldn't be pronounced. It should just be mild. And and uh, but generally, patient, it's very well tolerated. I mean. I rarely have patients even complain during the treatment of uh, that, that they're uncomfortable uh, or that they find the treatment you know distasteful in any way. Generally, it's well, very well tolerated. Um, so that's rarely a problem. If anything, I think patients have more problems with the first round of manipulation sure. than they do with the first round of dry needling, for sure. Mm-hmm. So no, I, I find that especially. And that was important to me, I mean, the way I've taught it for a decade, you know, that I want patients to have a good experience and it shouldn't be painful. It shouldn't, you know, it should be comfortable. There's no reason to make it painful. The literature about, you know, that we cover in the class on how to deliver dry needling painlessly is pretty clear. I mean, there's ways to do it that where patients can be very comfortable with it. So. I mean, I'm sure you experience the same thing, right? Well, so if we were comparing like the joint dysfunction model, joint blockage to dry needling, I think the three of us would admit there's a benefit, even if like we took some random person, you know, in our town here who doesn't have any pain, but they do have joint blockage that theoretically they're going to function better with joints that are moving better. Not to use the crazy term wellness, but is there a place for that in dry needling, meaning like we'll call it dry needling performance where someone might not have any pain at all, but you just kind of search and scour for all these trigger points throughout their body and we would dry needle them without them ever, you know, complaining of anything or... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because trigger points in a muscle indicate that the muscle is has to necessarily function suboptimally because at rest, the muscle is partially contracted. Mm. So they're not going to get their maximum performance out of it. There have been some interesting studies when we talk about uh, briefly, uh, you know, baseball players, pitchers uh, showing performance improvements pre and post, or you know, compared to pre needling versus after. These are asymptomatic young men, relatively healthy, uh, but you know, needling them and then going back to the bullpen, pitching another game in the bullpen a few days later, four days later, and they show dramatic improvements in their performance statistically significant dramatic improvement. So yeah, there's a role for dry needling and performance. It's certainly an exciting area. I, I um, somewhat removed from that world, um, much more than I used to be. I'm more, you know, in the family practice, uh, pain management, chronic, I like chronic pain patients. I enjoy, I'm the weird guy that God, enjoys- sick and twisted. I know, right? <laughs> but I enjoy treating, I enjoy, that's what I enjoy doing now at this stage of my career, I enjoy helping those people. But no, for people that enjoy in the performance world, there's definitely a role to be played for that. And I think uh, anybody who practices dry needling would agree with that, that you definitely see in performance. I mean, the athletes line up for the service. I mean, it's, it, you know, they're seeing, they're seeing improvement. Mm-hmm. 
definitely. Maybe just to wrap it up, Eric, um, we, you go through several models as far as maybe some descriptors of why needling works, uh, why needling reduces pain and stuff like that. What in your mind is the, the leading um, explanation for us as to, to why, why dry needling works or what's the, the best idea? Well, the, of the leading competing notions of the mechanisms for the effectiveness of needling, I would say that the clearly the one that seems to work the best is the mechanical reduction of the muscle contraction. So. Um, the other ones being like the damage effect and you also have this more complicated one called the skin battery effect where you're creating a an electrical differential with the needle but um and then the damage effect being the inflammation anti-inflammatory process that's associated with damaging tissue with the needle but the most important one being the mechanical reduction of contraction in the muscle with the needle uh, that's i think that's the most important benefit that needling provides. Beautiful. Uh, 50 years ago, Yanda divided the body into postural and phasic muscles. And it seems like in dry needling, we talk a lot about more of the superficial moving muscles that house this tension tone and trigger points. What do you think the benefit would be in a muscle that we would deem to be completely neurologically inhibited? So not necessarily, and I know we can have trigger points in both classifications of muscles but if we're wanting to turn on a muscle let's just say what's your take on that eric like as far as using dry needling maybe in isolation as a modality for uh, a patient like that let's just say that's a i honestly feel like if a patient has an inhibited let's say neurologically inhibited muscle the needling effect of going into that muscle with a needle does have a neurological effect of almost like a deep tendon reflex would mm-hmm. of causing when you contr- when you wind that muscle's fascia around the needle and you so you're you're causing a contraction of the muscle with the needle you're you're, you're kind of waking up that muscle sure when you elicit a twitch response in that muscle you're waking up that muscle and so if a patient has inhibited muscles either because of neurological atrophy because of injury and inhibition because of you know, this phenomena of, of amnesia of a muscle or, or, you know, the needling can serve a role there. Is this something that's established in the literature right now? No, but this is, there are people looking at this. Uh, it's, it's definitely what I would call cutting edge, uh, you know, and, um, but yes, anything you can do to stimulate the muscle is a positive. I mean, you're, anything you can do to bring attention to the muscle and wake the muscle up. Get it to get it to function. So you would be okay with our listeners uh, doing that in an attempt to to try to turn on a muscle, even though there may not be a tender point, a trigger point in the muscle. That for you, that's still okay. You'd be of course, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a modality. The needle is a tool. It's a calculator for an accountant and a physicist. Even though they're both using it differently, they still ha- it's a tool and. Dry needling, as it's you know mostly taught and performed, is for the treatment of myofascial pain and dysfunction. The dysfunction part is the is the area where there's not as much that's understood, where we're evolving and developing performance and rehabilitation models that incorporate dry needling. Hats off to Dr. Ma. He was kind of you know trying to figure some of this out early, and he, but but to what you're talking about, that is really sort of bleeding edge. Of course, I would expect nothing less from you, Brett. But you know that that is certainly more challenging uh, to find in the literature support for that. However, I can make an argument for it. Just 
mechanistically on what the needle's doing in the muscle. So absolutely. Right. Can I ask him one more question? I know we're out of time. You have a background in Graston. The people in Graston that are good at it, like yourself and others that are listening here, they talk about their ability to actually to be able to palpate with the tool. I feel like in my years of acupuncture, you can almost like palpate through the needle or like Taylor knows this. Like, I mean, I can tell the difference like in the gate, like they like our office manager orders needles and like the second it says it's the same, but I know it's, you know, like you can just feel so. Could you talk about that phenomenon, like almost how you almost can palpate sort of with the needle? Oh, absolutely. Like, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I obviously with, I don't know how many, you know, 30,000 hours of experience now or whatever doing this. I mean, I now I when I'm navigating a long three inch needle through, let's say, the patient, uh, you know, their femoral triangle to get to the psoas. I mean, a very tricky to deliver needle, let's say. I, I almost have the sense that I can, oh, there's a little vein there. I need to, na- you know, kind of push the needle a little this way. Or I, I can feel, I feel very keenly, you know, what the structures I'm moving through. I can tell when I've hit the muscle. I can tell when I'm in, you know, deep into enough into the muscle to hit a trigger point. When I should have approached the trigger point. So I can pull the, the needle back out, maybe re come in at a different angle if I didn't get the twitch response. I mean, you just sort of learn that those things. You... But it just takes time, like all things. It's it's about repetition and practice and application. Um, I heard a story about a surgeon who was handed a scalpel, and he he w- went to this is you know twenty or forty years ago, maybe even thirty years ago. Uh, went to use the scalpel on the patient, and he he said, "No, there's something wrong with the scalpel," and they set it aside. And later they put it under X-ray, and they found a crack in the scalpel that was not superficial it was deep inside the metal of the, of the scalpel but he, he could tell that something wasn't right you know I almost feel that way about the needle I can you can just feel you know where you are in the body you can tell what's going on I don't, I mean, I don't know if you yeah, have the yeah. same phenomenon but it's almost like another it's like another sensory organ that becomes an extension of yourself inside the inside your patient that's really exciting and mm-hmm. that's maybe one of the, the more intimate ways we have of viewing the patient I think it comes with a certain degree of intention, right? Like you're paying attention to your patients years and years and years and repetitions over repetitions and repetitions. You're building those memory banks, as like Brett always says with, uh, uh, who's a chess player? Uh, Bobby Fisher. Like Bobby Fisher was building these memory traces, and so he, he knew what the people were doing before anybody else did. And I think that that's what separates good clinicians from great clinicians is like being intentional with those you know, five minutes that you have with the patient that you're sticking a needle in them. You know, some people may get caught in the monotony and in the mechanicalness of it, but um, I, I assume that having some intention with what you're doing every single day is, has allowed you to build those memory traces and to get good at it mechanically. So I, mean, I hope so. Yeah, I mean, I've devoted my life to it, so I hope so. Yeah, awesome. Absolutely. Well, Eric, one of the things that I absolutely love about you is your passion, and uh, every time that you teach, you can feel the passion in the room, and that's a, a certain degree of teacher and a certain degree of clinician. And so that's why um, I appreciate learning from you every single time. I was telling you today, I think this is the fifth time, fifth or sixth time that I've taken dry needling. Which I just, I mean, that's ridiculous. My (laughs) wife would think you were crazy (laughs) for for listening to Let's not bring the wife. Yeah. (laughs) Come on, man. I'm sure they all got shit to say about this. But but I just think that that's something that Brett and I appreciate is that, number one, you still are uh, your, your main source of not only income, but your source of passion is treating and helping 
helping patients. That's correct, yes. And so um, that is like a, a, a far and away number one for all the people that teach for Gestalt Education is that they need to be just as passionate about teaching as they are for patient care and for getting patient results. And so we, we appreciate that. Um, you'll be back in Troy at the, the first weekend in May um, for, for Dry Needling 2. Yep. Um, we're really excited to, to have you part of the team and uh, we're excited to kind of take this on the road. We're going to be starting doing some with the Indiana State uh, Board of Chiropractic. That's kind of hush hush right now, but it's going to be coming and uh, some other locations throughout the country. And so uh, we're, we're hitching our wagon to you because uh, we're, we believe in your, your skills and uh, your teachings. So. Well, you guys are the best. And so, you know, <laughs> I would only work with the best. So I'm real excited to be working with you guys. Rock awesome. And roll. Awesome, guys. Well, um, good luck. And uh, if you're looking to add dry needling into your practice, uh, come learn. Uh, take the time to, to understand the, the neurophysiology, understand how to actually deliver a needle and uh, uh, incorporate your practice because it's amazing. Dr. Mitz also, I think he adds a lot of business the business side to this also. So I think you uh, you run a podcast yourself, right? Is that well? I, I I have there is a podcast that I still you know keep out there. I haven't recorded an episode in several years, um, but I keep it out in the public domain. I you know I'm never still don't make and I never made any money. I don't intend to, but I've been very blessed in practice and any the knowledge that I have about what I think it takes to be successful in the sort of practice that I have the rehab centric insurance based practice. I've shared the information or medical referral practice, shared that information out there for people who might be interested. It's called the Thriving Chiropractor, yes, and uh, I'll, I'll link it in the show notes so that uh, you guys can link to it. It's a great podcast that we were talking about. Yeah, it's it's it's. I haven't recorded an episode in a long time. I don't know that I will, will but it's the, I keep it alive for people because it still gets downloaded frequently and listened to frequently, and I feel that I owe it to the profession to help in that way if I can. So Well, that's the ultimate goal with us, is too, is to bridge the profession together and, and start building some uh, some challenges and some uh, having difficult conversations with people and getting in the room with people that, that are smarter than us and, and trying mm-hmm. to just elevate everything together. So And Lynn Faye says, if you're the best at what you're doing, you deserve to earn a professional income. So you can be great, but you deserve to be paid to be great. So and, and there are and there are a lot of you have to be great. Right. You have to be great. Uh, you can make a, a wonderful living. I certainly have been very blessed, and you know we all feel the same way. That this is a I, I wouldn't have it any other way. I love what I do. I'm very blessed to be doing what I do. I've had a wonderful career, and I look forward to the. 15 or so years I have left in my career, 15, 20 years left. I, I'm, I'm excited about it, and I look forward to working with you guys. Rock and roll, guys. Okay, well, uh, thank you, Eric, again, and uh, what a good what a good podcast. That turned out great. Yeah, so uh, we're time. looking forward to it. We're going to have a little bit more sleeve of it and uh, maybe a couple seltzers before the night's up. So um, <laughs> uh, thank you guys for tuning in, and uh, as always, visit Gestalt Education, uh, gestaltedu.com for our uplisted uh, list of courses, and uh, stay tuned. So uh, with that being said, good luck on Monday, and uh, keep crushing patience.